At the end of April, on Earth Week, Sustainable Carolina hosted its first ever Sustainability Research Symposium. Research is a big component of our sustainability operation here at UNC Chapel Hill. This event was a manifestation of this core idea that research and academics push sustainability forward. Generating new ideas and fostering collaborations translates to a future with more opportunity to embrace sustainability. During the symposium, nine experts from across UNC Chapel Hill schools and departments gave lightning talks. We're back with another bonus episode from our end of the year research symposium. As we begin to feel more of that summer heat here in North Carolina, we think it's a fitting time to talk about the urban heat island effect. First, Shu Wei Wong will talk about her work with the data-driven lab, led by Angel Shu. Then, we'll hear from Noah Kittner with Gilling School of Global Public Health. Kittner will talk about building sustainable, resilient energy systems. He too will touch on the urban heat island effect as he explains the barriers to clean energy for marginalized communities. All right, we're going to let Shuei Wang take it from here. So today, I would like to share our latest study on urban key island, and specifically talking about how citizen and machine learning aided high-resolution mapping of urban heat exposure and stress in Chapel Hill. When compared to rural areas, urban areas often experience higher temperatures. This is due to the built environment and the way it impacts land cover. In denser areas, there are more buildings, and as a result, more impervious surfaces. Instead of reflecting heat, these areas absorb heat. The first question the data-driven lab wanted to answer was how to go about measuring the urban heat island effect. The answer lies partly above our heads. Ideally, uh, to measure the uh, urban heat island, you would use the air temperature, for example, from the water station, from the local uh, like the air monitors, but the issue is for those type of like weather station is not available, is not well covered of the whole area. Usually for example, Chapel Hill, there's only like two or three data points for the whole area. And that's how then for the this problem that we turn into the satellite data, which is a uh, top-down uh, imagery that captured the ground surface, land surface temperature. Back in 2021, uh, Dr. Xu and uh, the other research did the research on the urban heat island disparities all over 175 major U.S. cities and urban areas. And what we found from this, this research is that uh, in majority of the U.S. cities, the people of color and people uh, below the poverty line are have a higher risk of exposed to the urban heat island compared to their counterparts. Now that the data-driven lab had a better idea of what the big picture looked like, they were interested in looking at the urban heat island effect at the individual level. The difference this time is that the team wouldn't just need satellites overhead, but also boots on the ground. Uh, remote sensing imagery is a top-down uh, data, which is not a very sensitive to how individual feels. And that's how we turn into our uh, study in Chapel Hill. So in this study, we're using the pocket lab sensor, which measures air temperature, humidity, and also geological location for every, every one second. And we map the uh, air temperature and these data at three uh, at five different locations in Chapel Hill, identified by the town of Chapel Hill that had higher uh, extreme heat uh, exposure. If you're familiar with Chapel Hill, 
The locations selected for this study included three along Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and two locations off of Fordham Boulevard. The team hoped that this work would provide them answers to their three burning questions. One, can citizen science help understand the urban heat island effect? Two, what are the predictors and drivers of the urban heat island effect in Chapel Hill? And three, is there any heat exposure disparities happening in Chapel Hill? We had almost like 40 participants mapping two sessions. Uh, one is from 2 to 3 p.m. The other one is from 5 to uh, 6 p.m. Then uh, we're going to use, to, uh, use those um, citizen science data to understand, say, if we can build a model to predict the likely air temperature and humidity of the whole area of Chapel Hill. The team paired the ground temperature measurements obtained from the pocket sensors with additional data. Data included NDVI, a measure of vegetation cover, and DBI, a measure of impervious surface cover, land surface temperature, and area imagery. Area imagery helps visualize things like the number of trees in an area. We found out uh, for air temperature and uh, relative humidity, for both of these two models, the land surface temperature are the top predictors. Next, it was time to take a closer look at the predicted air temperatures, relative humidity, and humidity index. The humidity index is what the temperature feels like to a person. It takes into account both the temperature and relative humidity. We found out from 2 to 3 p.m. the air temperature is uh, for the Chapel Hill is all over hot over the whole area. While in the, uh, in the later in the day, 5 to 6 p.m., uh, the heat it seems is uh, has more variety in their distribution. So similar patterns also found in the relative humidity and also the human index. Then the team looked at differences in temperatures depending on the land cover whether there were trees, grassland, buildings, or sparse vegetation. We found out that overall, the urban or impervious surface area is about 1.2 in Celsius, uh, hotter than the tree area. Once this information was obtained, it was time to look at whether heat and air temperature are distributed differently across different demographic and social groups. So, so far we really haven't found out um, a significant differences of uh, the heat distribution among different social economic demographic because um, these uh, like demographic of Chapel Hill is more or less like uniform compared to other of the regions. Then we we'll turn into income to see if this will be a indicator uh, or the heat may distribute it differently uh, among, uh, versus the income. So we notice that the uh, land surface temperature is much more sensitive to the income versus the other two data from our study. So this is kind of expected because the land surface temperature is, you know, the top down. Kind of we think this might be become an issue because the land surface temperature has been using so many studies, so many uh, research about urban heat island, and we think this is my res result in a uh, overestimate of the urban heat island, while People are using that because there isn't enough uh, available data at the you know our individual level of air temperature. So that's definitely a calling for more data to have a more granularity or more like individual level of air temperature data to really help us understanding what's really happening happening under the canopy at the individual level of what the heat distribution really is and how that may affect people.
Despite the fact that there's a need for better data to identify urban heat islands, there are places that are definitely retaining more heat. There are also interventions that can counter the rough heat that comes in the summer here in North Carolina. Planting trees is a simple solution. The city of Raleigh also has an innovative project that's reducing the urban heat island effect. The cool railways pilot project, I think is really cool because they're trying to paint a road with a light color, uh, with the material that's supposed, uh, they, they can reflect the heat uh, versus the, the road supposed to absorb the heat. So they help uh, trying to see if this practice could help uh, reducing the urban heat island effect. And also, uh, you can also help uh, contribute this and uh, participate our mapping session with our data-driven lab. In 2022, Noah Kittner, assistant professor at Gillings School of Global Public Health, teamed up with Angel Shu and other researchers at Carolina to explore the intersection of urban heat, electric grid infrastructure, and health equity. In collaboration with other researchers on campus, including in the um, Angel Shu's lab and the data-driven lab, we're looking at um, ways to combine more sustainable distributed energy technologies uh, with uh, communities that are more vulnerable within neighborhoods. So for instance, ones that might experience higher urban heat island effects could benefit more from adopting heat pumps or energy efficiency measures. For distributed um, solar or heat pumps or these other technologies that are now being subsidized at a household level, uh, there is a big disparity on who's able to access and, and afford uh, these uh, historically. In addition to this research-based work, Kintner is also helping to create networks that could bring about systemic, meaningful change for communities. A lot of studies have noted the deep barriers there are to actually getting clean energy technologies in households that are the most vulnerable or marginalized communities. And so um, from an uh, affordability perspective as well, um, we've been partnering with researchers at NCANT to establish a North Carolina household energy network that is looking at uh, the affordability of um, uh, home energy uh, bills and then um, evaluating what are the costs of uh, upgrades that are made available by things like the Inflation Reduction Act. Kittner's attention to equity in energy systems underscores the need for a transdisciplinary approach when it comes to building resilient infrastructure. Our work looks at uh, planning for low-carbon, healthy, resilient energy systems, and in particular, um, recently we've uh, been really focused on what are innovations in distributed energy systems like microgrids or um, uh, vehicle-to-grid systems or energy storage technologies uh, that could help achieve a more uh, sustainable uh, transition. Melanie Elliott, sustainability analyst here at Sustainable Carolina, worked with Kittner to explore vehicle-to-grid technologies. Melanie Elliott was involved in the study uh, that was published where we looked at the um, vehicle-to-grid implications of using electric school buses in North Carolina as a source for energy storage. And what we were doing is quantifying the total amount of potential uh, energy storage that could reduce uh, the peak uh, electricity demand during um, periods and school buses are particularly interesting since they're parked for a large portion of the day while kids aren't at school as opposed to regular public transit vehicles which are constantly in operation. 
The work found that if all the school buses in North Carolina were replaced with a fully electric fleet, that's 14,000 buses, they would store enough power to eliminate approximately 1,130 metric tons of CO2 every day, depending on some additional external factors. So one of the projects um, that has been a big focus recently is looking at what are the existing long duration energy storage technologies that could help meet different states' uh, decarbonization targets. So in California, they passed a law by 2045, there needs to be uh, net zero carbon emissions in the electricity sector, uh, but there's not necessarily a clear path on, on how to get there. And some of those technologies are still under development. And so identifying which technologies uh, from a storage perspective could use more investment or further along that could help reduce the cost quicker would um, would be really beneficial for um, government agencies and um, scientists trying to model what are the actual emissions reductions. So, how many hours of storage are needed to be resilient? You might be wondering, well, there's a lot of talk on lithium-ion batteries, so why, why do we need other types of storage? Well, lithium-ion batteries may have a very high round-trip efficiency, uh, but they're pretty limited in terms of the duration of uh, the amount of time they can discharge electricity. It's really between two and four hours. And if we transition to a grid that might have a lot more solar and wind, in the future there might be challenges, especially in the winter, where uh, some of you um, may have heard of this term of um, the Dunkelflaute, or this is the, a German term for the doldrum period when there's not enough sunlight or, or um, wind in, in the winter to meet uh, the electricity needs. And so there might be this seasonal discrepancy between the summer availability of solar and um, in the winter, and so there might need, need to be seasonal storage options. There's increasingly a business model now for uh, energy storage technologies that could provide resilience uh, on the grid. So with increasing power outages and the frequency of extreme weather events, uh, we may need uh, some storage options that could provide 12, uh, 10 to 100 hours of, uh, of storage to, to make it through those uh, events. So my group has been looking at what are the, uh, well, conducting different techno-economic evaluations of, of some of these technologies like flow batteries, um, mechanical gravity storage, uh, thermal uh, electricity storage, and uh, hydrogen, which now is um, receiving uh, a lot of subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act, but there's still a big question about how clean different flavors of hydrogen are. So you may have heard of green hydrogen versus gray or blue hydrogen, and uh, we use tools like life cycle assessments to quantify the uh, greenhouse gas emissions impact of these different fuel options. A student in Kittner's lab, Peyton Lindigan, won an honorable mention for his work on hydrogen storage at the Appalachian State Energy Summit in June. Uh, Peyton Lindigan is an undergraduate here, um, has been working with me on updating uh, a, a learning curve model that um, originally we were looking at different storage technologies and now we're looking at electrolyzers for hydrogen production because that has become a really big question uh, especially with the Inflation Reduction Act, the cost of uh, water electrolysis is still pretty high and inefficient, but um, if you're able to use hydrogen as a drop-in substitute in industrial 
sectors or in aviation for decarbonization, there could be a, a lot lower costs to uh, reaching our climate targets faster. From his equity research with Angel Shu to working to better understand storage technologies, Kittner has a wide range of interests when it comes to energy storage. He's currently diving into sustainability of different materials to be used within storage technologies. He also hopes to find answers about how storage can support more critical infrastructure, like hospitals and grids.